0: Alright, it's good to have everyone here this morning. Let's turn to Psalm chapter 19. We'll be in Psalm 19 this morning. I actually um, prepared this message sometime last fall when Pastor was um, gone as well. And I was, preaching, was going to be preaching the Sunday morning service, and Josiah had the Sunday night service. And so Saturday we were here for soul winning, and we were kind of talking about preaching, and and so... Just jokingly, I asked him, like, you're not in Psalm 19, are you? We did not expect it, him to be at all, but apparently he was. He had prepared a message out of Psalm 19. Uh, both him and I had the same thought. We're covering the entire chapter. You can. And so I'm like, okay, well, um, better change the plans here. So I don't think the congregation would like too much to basically the same messages Sunday morning and Sunday night. Some of you guys may not get it Sunday morning, I guess. But uh, So I'm like, okay, we'll change plans here, and uh, I'll, I put this one on hold. And so I waited till he was gone. Now and I'll preach mine. So, all right, Psalm 19. We're not going to read it in um, its a entirety to start off. It's, I want to get into the message here pretty quickly. But just giving an overview of the chapter, um, Psalm is, is really an incredible chapter, especially with the. It gives great detail um, regarding God's revelation of Himself to mankind. That's really uh, kind of the driving um, point of this. A chapter. It's the clearest picture we really have of the two primary types of revelation that God uses. He uses what is called general revelation, that is a revelation through the universe, through his creation, that would point mankind to God, saying there is a God, there is a creator, a general revelation. But then there's also revelation from his word, or what we call specific revelation. So we have both of these contained in this chapter. And then the chapter actually finishes up with a response to that revelation. Um, How mankind should respond when he realizes God's revelation to him. And this um, is practical for salvation. It's also practical for the Christian after salvation of how we respond to... To God's revelation of, of Himself to us, and that's primarily going to be through His, um, through His Word, as we'll see, getting into the chapter. The, uh, psal- the author of the Psalm is David, and uh, that will come into play here a little bit later. <clears throat> so we're going to look at both types of the revelation: the general revelation and the specific revelation, and then we'll look at the proper response to this revelation. So let's go ahead and open in prayer, and then we'll get into the message. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for all you've done. Lord, thank you for giving us safety coming in. Lord, I pray that your spirit work in a great way here this morning. I pray that you fill me with your spirit. Help us, help me to say only what you would have me to say. And help all of us to take the truths in your word here that were discussed this morning. Apply them to our lives. I pray that we use them um, throughout our lives, Lord, as we go about our business. Lord, that we use these truths to help us be more pleasing to you, to help us to glorify you more. And Lord, we'll give you all the honor and glory for that. And I pray if there's one in this service that has never accepted you as their Savior, Lord, I pray that today be the day of salvation for them, that your Holy Spirit convict them of their sin and draw them to you, and that they yield and put their faith and trust completely in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And again, we'll give all the honor and praise for that, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's read the first six verses here, uh, the part covering the general revelation, and then we'll, we'll dive into it. All right, starting in verse 1 of of Psalm 19. It says, "...the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the Son, which is as a bridegroom, coming out of his chamber." and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of the heaven, and a circuit unto the ends of it. And there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. Alright, the, uh, the heavens declare the glory of God, as the psalm starts off there. And again, one only need, at the, need look at the creation itself and the intricacies that are contained in it to know this has to be, have a designer. There has to be someone who designed it, who created it. This does not happen by chance. There is no way an explosion in space causes the the intricacy of the human body, of just one part, the human ear or the human eye. Explosion and evolution from that does that does not explain it. Um, it just it's ludicrous to think that. We look at the intricate uh, machines that man makes, and of course we're getting big into the AI and the, the robots and everything like that, no one would even dare say, well that robot over there, that's just chance. There's a, a pile of, a pile of uh, metal all together, they threw it into the fire and out pops this robot um, full of the electric circuits that it needs to function. No one would say that was a chance event, but our bodies are far more intricate than any robot that has been invented, any robot that will be invented. Um, the, the human body is really an amazing thing, and yet people say it came by chance. Just absolutely crazy. And so the heavens, the creation itself, declare the glory of God, and pr- this this um, portion of Scripture is primarily alluding to space, to the heavens as we look out into the sky and we see all these Beautiful lights and everything, and of course, with a telescope, you see even more of that. there is such beauty around us, and it all points to the glory and the handiwork of God. Our passage even alludes to the, um, the scientific fact that our solar our system, our solar system is heliocentric, meaning it is, revolves around the sun. It says in them talking about the, the heavens, the space. Have He set a tabernacle for the sun? The sun is the primary focus of this heaven, of our solar system. Just as we know, earth uh, goes around the sun, has a circuit around the sun, Uh, contrary to public belief in the scientific field up until a few hundred years ago. A lot of people thought everything revolved around the earth. But in God's word, we already see the sun is the center. The heavens are the, the tabernacle for the sun. And again, the complexities of the relationship between sun and the earth are far too complicated for chance to be the cause of it. The earth, of course, is the perfect distance from the sun for life to survive. No other planet has come close to being livable like earth is. 93 93 million miles away is the correct amount that keeps us close enough to have enough heat for a livable climate but not too much heat the earth's weight and mass combined of course with other things contributing to the gravitational pull keeps us at the right distance from the sun so that we are not too close and be burned up and yet not far enough away that we are flung into the outer section of the of the solar system that does not happen by accident earth doesn't settle into this perfect spot by chance there has to be a creator and then you look at all the other um, galaxies that are out there or the things contained in in the milky way galaxy all this stuff it doesn't happen by chance god placed it there and why did he place it there for his glory the heavens declare the glory of god to us some of these things seem inconsequential well it's it's pretty to look at but there's no real reason it doesn't affect our lives but god said "I, i want that there that's for my glory and he created heavens, the heavens for his glory. So as we examine the general revelation, looking at particularly here at, at space, but just creation in general as well, we find two things about it. It is unlimited in its scope of, what, of who it reaches, but it is limited in its message of what it says. So first of all, it's unlimited in its scope. The heavens speak a continual message. There is no point in time when creation stops displaying the glory of God. No point in time whatsoever. You see that in verse 2 Day unto day out of the speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. Day and night, regardless, it continue, continually shows forth the glory of God, pointing mankind to a creator. The message is understandable no matter what language one speaks. It, tra- the message transcends all languages verse three there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard where their voice is not understand doesn't matter if you speak pig Latin or if you speak Norwegian you know the message of creation you know it's pointing to a God pointing to a creator transcends all languages there is no place on earth where the message of the heavens is absent. Verse 4. Their line has gone out through all the earth. And the words to the end of the world. In, and then it goes on to say, talk about the sun. The message of creation goes in every part of the world. There's no spot on planet earth where this message is not communicated. From anywhere on earth. If you're in Russia, 80 below zero, you see the message of God. If you're in the deep rainforests of the Amazon you see the glory of God displayed through creation. If you're in Australia, if you're in in Thailand, if you're in in Canada, you see the message of God, the message of of the creation of God, the glory of God, you see it clearly, if you would only look. It is unlimited in scope. It reaches everywhere. It reaches everyone. But this revelation is limited in its message. As I said, everyone can see, everyone can understand the message of creation. But the message of creation does not tell someone how to be saved. It does not necessarily tell someone how to draw closer to the Creator. The main message of creation is to point people to the Creator. To tell people there is a God out there. And with that comes many implications. That our lives are not our own. That there is someone who is above us. We are not Lord of everything. And on and on. You could list many implications that come with the fact that there is a God. There is a creator. And that is the message. The one message that the heavens tell us. It does not tell us of man's sinful state. That we are in desperate need of of a creator. And it does not instruct man on how to draw close to the creator. It merely tells and shows mankind there is a creator. Again, someone cannot get saved just by the general revelation of creation. You cannot escape the judgment of sins just on that. There are people who believe, if they are alone in God's creation, that they can know God. They'll fully know God and they can have that relationship with Him because they get on top of a mountain and they see the beauty that God has made and they think that they know God, that they have a special relationship with Him. That is false. That is not a way to get a relationship with God, just to view his grandeur, the grandeur of his creation. The general revelation is limited in in its message. It can only say there is a God, and it shows it very clearly. Uh, Just how the beauty that we see, the grandeur, as I mentioned, the man-made structures compared to the tiniest planet are minuscule. Compared to the, the majesty of the universe, it's not even worth mentioning. We have these wonders of, that mankind has made in Taj Mahal or, or the different places that we see. Just minuscule compared to God's creation. Compared to Mount Everest. Mankind's not going to make anything that's as big as Mount Everest. And that's just a little, little part of God's creation on a little t- tiny planet of God's creation. But it does point mankind. There is a creator. Now, mankind then is faced with that choice of whether they will respond to that. And those who respond to it and say, I need to search and seek out this God, God has promised that he will show himself to them. God says, if you find me, I will I'll be found of you if you seek me with your whole heart. When mankind sees the grandeur of creation and he realizes there is a creator, there is a God, I want to know him more, then God will reveal more to him. And that brings us to the specific revelation. So the general revelation, unlimited in scope, but limited in message. And we'll find the, inverse, the reverse is true. The, the opposite of that is true here with specific revelation. And this is contained uh, in this passage, verses 7 through 11. Let's go ahead and read those. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Several different names for the Word of God, the Law of the Lord, the Statutes of the Lord, the Commandments of the Lord, the Judgments of the Lord. All different names for the Word of God, the Bible. The specific revelation of God to mankind comes to us in 66 books of the Bible. It is the complete revelation of God's Word. There is no further revelation coming. We have all, we have the complete revelation of God. There's no more dreams coming. Nothing like that, you know. You know, you have Joseph Smith or some of these other false prophets, these founders of these false religions out there. Say so you got a special revelation from God, and it's not coming. This is the complete revelation of God to mankind. The Bible, the Bible is limited in its scope, but it is unlimited in its message. The scope of the of the specific revelation of the Bible's revelation is confined only to those who hear it or read it. That is the only one who it touches. Those who hear the word of God or those who read the word of God. The word of God does not by itself go to the other ends of the earth like creation does. It is limited only to those who read it or hear it. But the message, that is unlimited. The primary message of the word of God is, the, is Christ bringing salvation to mankind to save him from his sin. And that's message enough of itself. But the Bible goes on to tell us how to lead a good and a profitable life. It tells how government should be structured. How marriages can be successful. How familial love can abound. How difficult circumstances can be overcome. On and on you could find there's so many messages Contained in the word of God. The message of God's word is unlimited. You will never exhaust the messages found in his word. And again, we do not have the time, nor the ability, to exhaust all these messages. So we're going to contain ourselves, restrict ourselves to the effect of these messages in the specific revelation um, that are given to us in our text here. Um, so we're told, as we we're told there in verse 10... The effect of this revelation is extremely desirable. More to be desired are they than gold, and sweeter also than honey. They're profitable for us. So we'll go through these verses fairly quickly here. Verse 7, we'll look at the first part. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The primary message of the word of God, the conversion of the soul. This is the main reason God has given us his word. It is the Bible that gives us the history of man's creation and of his fall into sin. And that fall into sin brought death into the world. The Bible, though, also tells us how God provided a way that man can be brought back into fellowship with his Maker and saved from eternal death and punishment which his sin brought about. The conversion of a soul is available... Because the word of God himself became flesh and dwelt among us. Christ himself lived a perfect life. The son of God, God in the flesh, lived a perfect life. And he satisfied the holiness of God that is required to have to escape judgment from sin. There is no scale to determine, oh, it looks like his good works are 51%, his bad works are 49 He made it into heaven. If there is anything on the bad works scale... You go to hell. It doesn't matter if you have a ton on the good work side and a little grain of sand on the bad work side. There's something on the bad. You have sinned. It doesn't matter how many good works you've done, you are condemned to hell. You have broken the law of God. In order to escape judgment from sin, your life must be perfect. No sin whatsoever. And that's why Christ came and He lived a perfect life and He satisfied the holiness of God. And then He went to the cross. Why did He go on the cross? And that was that He went to the cross to pay the penalty, not for His sin. You realize we all can pay the penalty for our own sin. It's an eternity in the lake of fire. It's not the the problem is finding someone to pay the penalty. The problem is not finding someone to pay the penalty for our sin. We naturally will pay the penalty for our own sins. It's finding someone else to pay the penalty for our sin so that we can look perfect. And that's what happened on the cross. Jesus Christ hanging on the cross and God placed the sin of every one who has ever lived upon him. I talked about this a little bit in our Sunday, Sunday school class downstairs. When I think of my sins and Christ being judged as the one who committed my sins, it's bad enough. Like, it's horrible. I think of some of the things I've done. I'm like, I can't believe Jesus was judged and punished as if He committed those sins, as if He was a perpetrator of those sins. But we know this is available to all of mankind. So then we start thinking, okay, some pretty bad people in the world, people, bad people who have lived throughout the world. We think of Genghis Khan, who ravaged and pillaged his way. To form the largest land empire the world has ever seen, the Mongol Empire. Some of those sieges they perpetrated pretty pretty cruel. You would find they would find you know they would, obviously the rape and everything that would go that would take place after a siege, and then finding pregnant women and ripping them open. Christ was paid as if he was one of those soldiers. Oh, he paid the penalty of that sin as if he was the one who committed that sin. Think of the very vilest, most heinous sins we can think of that mankind has perpetrated on themselves. And Christ was judged as if he was the one who did that. We see the love of God coming through so clearly. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So when God placed our sin upon Jesus Christ as he hung there on the cross, that satisfied the justness of God. Justice was now fulfilled. Our sins were paid for because of the word of God hanging on the cross. And then of course we know, He defeated death and hell three days later, rose again from the dead. If he does not rise from the dead, he's just another man who made some big promises, and you can believe him or not, but it's actually not going to make much of a difference. He has to prove that he is God. He has to rise again, defeat death and hell, prove he is greater than death, and that we can trust in him for life. He rose again from the dead. So every sin that has ever been committed in this world... Now has been paid for. Justice has been done for that sin. For that person. But that does not mean salvation comes to every person. It is not effective. It is not effectual for them. Just because the sin is paid for. Doesn't mean. They're going to heaven. Every man. And woman. Must make the decision. Whether they will accept Christ's payment. For that or not. If you had a car in the shop. And somebody came by and paid the bill. And you came by and they said, hey, this bill's already been paid for. I think most of us would say, oh, that's great. So happy to hear it. How many of us would say, no, I insist on paying my own bill? That's what people do. They say, "My, my debt has already been paid for. But no, I want to pay for it myself. And they do. They die and they spend an eternity in hell. Why would you do that? Through God's love, He has provided this way that your soul can be converted. Converted from a sinful nature to a heavenly one. That you can escape an eternity in a lake of fire. And spend an eternity with God Himself. That's the conversion of the soul. Why do people reject this? Those who choose to accept Christ's substitutionary death do so by recognizing the vileness of their sins and the judgment that must occur because of those sins. And they trust in Jesus and his blood alone to save them from that horrible judgment. I'm not going to trust in anything else except Christ's sacrifice on Calvary. And the moment of conversion then occurs when they faith, put their faith completely in him. The soul is now converted. The law of the Lord is Perfect. The doctrine contained in the doctrine of salvation is perfect. It is complete in the word of God in Christ. It converts the soul. This can only be accomplished through the reading or the hearing of God's specific revelation. Whereas Romans 10 tell us, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. It does not come by the creation of God. It comes by the word of God. So it converts the soul. These next ones we'll cover a little bit quicker, I promise. All right, back in this, Psalm 19, verse 7, the last portion. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. True wisdom has no other source than God himself. He is the only, he is the only source of true wisdom. There is a form of worldly wisdom, but that wisdom is not sure, is not steadfast, is not reliable. It is not useful for every situation. You cannot trust in the world's wisdom when those major decisions arise or when you have a critical interaction between a spouse or the family member. The world's wisdom will not help you then. You need wisdom from God in how to resolve these situations. And you get that from his specific revelation, the Word of God. The right wisdom for those situations comes from God. We see that in Proverbs chapter 2 as well as I believe it's Job chapter 28. God is the source of wisdom. And he reveals his wisdom to us through his word. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Verse 8. And we see he gives, he gives joy. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. You look at the world today, there's not very many sources of joy in the world. People trying to discover themselves. And what they discover is they're actually more miserable than they really realized. The only way we can find a source of joy is through the Word of God. Other things can give momentary pleasure or momentary happiness, but those things quickly fade away. If you are counting on your bank account to give you joy, these last few years, it has faded quickly. We receive lasting joy by learning more of God from His Word through god 's revealing of himself to us let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 15 we'll read a verse here <coughs> Jeremiah 15 and we 'll read verses 15 and sixteen little background about jeremiah he served he was a, a prophet during the last few years of the kingdom of Israel the last, the southern kingdom of Judah <coughs> And his ministry was to tell the kingdom of Judah to surrender to Babylon. That would be like someone rising from the pulpit and telling us we need to surrender to China. How popular do you think that message was? That's the ministry that God had given to Jeremiah. It is no wonder he is called the weeping prophet. You see the love that he has for the people. He keeps delivering this message over and over. Well, let's pick it up Jeremiah fifteen verse fifteen. O Lord, thou knowest, remember me and visit me and revenge me of my persecutors. Take me not away in thy long suffering. Know that for thy sake I have suffered rebuke. Thy words were found and I did eat them. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart, for I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. He was thrown in prison multiple times. As you can see, he had some persecutors. Again, understandable, considering his message. And he said, verse 16, he found God's words, he did eat them up, and they were to him, the joy and rejoicing of his heart. He had horrible horrible circumstances to deal with. But he said, God's word gives him the joy and rejoices his heart. God's word gives true joy, and it is the only source for true joy. In the midst of hardships, we, as Jeremiah did, can still have joy because of the word of God through, his, through the, uh, God's revelation to us. Back to Psalm 19. Look at the latter portion of verse 8. It says, The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. We saw from the previous verse that God's the Bible, God's word, gives us wisdom, but here we see it also illuminates truth to us, that enlightens the eyes. The word of God, if we're applying it to our lives, often eliminates choices that we would have if we were not applying it to our life. Illustration of this humorous one. You're going down and you say, okay, you know, which wine should I have with my with my dinner today? Well, if you're applying God's word to your life, you'll know that he says, wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging. Whosoever is deceived by is not wise. So I Alcohol, then, is removed from the picture. You don't even have to worry about it. That choice is now removed. Because you're applying God's word to your life. The people who don't apply God's word to their life, they have that choice. Obviously, that's a simple example. But it's so true in major, uh, major decisions we will face. Which decision is going to help me glorify God the most? Which decision is going to help me be pleasing to God? Should I move my family to... Somewhere where I know there is no church, no Word of God being taught? Or should I go to this area where I know there's a great church and the Word of God is being preached effectively? The Word of God removes one of the choices. It enlightens the eyes. It gives clarity to your decision. That is what the Word of God does for us. It illuminates truth. Psalm 119, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You go in the light. Everything around the darkness, that's not where you're going. Your choice is purely in the light. Purely following God's word. Anything that is not in the scope of God, that is not in the light of God's word, is removed from the equation. You're following only the light. So it illuminates truth for us. It enlightens our eyes. Verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Forever. The fear of God is learned from the word of God. You see that in Deuteronomy chapter 4 in verse number 10. And when the fear of God is in place, it keeps our lives free from the corrupting influences of sin. It is pure. It is clean. There is no defilement found in the word of God. And so when we apply the word of God to our life, it cleans us. It cleanses us. Psalm 119, verse 9. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his ways? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Applying the word of God to his life. That is how we clean our lives. Through the fear of God in place, helping us make those decisions. And applying his word to our lives. Fear, li- a life excuse me, lived in the fear of God will prove to be one that lasts and endures forever. Uh, latter portion of verse 9 now. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The word of God secures us. It is The word of God is truth and righteousness. It is not deceptive. Satan often promises things. And he often deceives us. The word of God, there's nothing, no promise contained in the word of God that is deceptive. Every promise of God, every word of God is truth it is righteous altogether, and this gives us a hope to cling to. If we know that the Bible is truly, true and righteous, then we can trust it implicitly, regardless of it, uh, regardless of it if it runs contrary to our human way of thinking. If we think, well, this is how we should be doing. This is what should bring about this goal in my life, and the Word of God says, actually, that's not. The way to bring about that goal of your life is in a completely different direction than we can trust the Word of God because it is true, it is righteous. Altogether. And so that gives us a hope to cling to. It gives us a foundation to base our lives on because it is completely true. And so it gives us such strength for our life, such security in our life. So the Word of God Converts the soul, it imparts wisdom, it gives joy, it illuminates truth, it provides purity, and it secures us. That's just the message of the Word of God contained in these few verses. Again, on and on you could go. So what is the response to this Word of God? What is David, What was David's response? We see that contained here in verses 12 through 14. Let's read them quickly. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. This is almost like an abrupt change that happens. He's dealing with the revelation of God's word and the revelation of creation, and then he just instantly makes the change over to pleading with God about his life. Three pleas that he gives there, verses 12, 13, and 14. And those plea in those Three pleas, we find two common threads. David has a desire to forsake sin and to be pleasing to God. You see that in all three of those verses. And that is the right response to Revelation. When God reveals himself to us, those two desires should be in place. We have a desire to forsake sin and to be pleasing to God. Again, that's true at salvation. Forsaking the sin and going closer to, to the Father... Takes place in salvation. That desire should be in place during salvation, but also, of course, after salvation. When God, when you are in your Bible and reading, or when God's word is being preached, that is the response that the revelation of God's word should give you: a desire to forsake sin and a desire to be pleasing to God. The three types uh, David covers three types of sin that he is seeking to avoid. In his response to God's revelation, we see the covered sin, or the secret sin, a calculated sin, and the careless sins. So we have a covered sin, the calculated sin, and the careless sins. Verse 12 is the covered sins. Those that are secret to us that we're not really even aware of. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. David starts the verse off with a rhetorical question. That points to the need for God's revelation. Who could understand his errors? We don't know everything that's wrong with us. We don't know what we are capable of. God does. As I said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? What's the next verse? I, the Lord, search the hearts. I try the reins. God knows our heart, what we are capable of. What covered sins are laying dormant in our lives, just waiting for the opportunity to come out. God knows that, and so that's why David is going to God. Who could understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. He pleads with God to cleanse him from those sins that he's not even aware of. Those that are covered even from him. And in this we see his desire for complete sanctification of his life to God. He said, Lord, I don't want any sin. Not even the sins that I'm unaware of. Like I may be committing some I'm not sure of, if I am or not but those that I don't even know about I want cleansed from. Complete sanctification of his life. He has a desire for holiness, a desire to depart from sin, to get sin completely out of his life, of these covered sins. Next one is the calculated sins. Verse 13. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. This word presumptuous is an interesting one. It, it, this passage is the only passage in the bible where this hebrew word is translated as presumptuous every other times every other place it is found it is translated as proud so these are the decisions that we know are against god's word and we're going to go ahead and make them do them anyway it's presumptuous we're proud we are rebelling against god when we commit these sins and he's saying keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Keep me back from those sins that I know are wrong, but I'm just going to go ahead and do them because I want to do them. He says, let them not have dominion over me. He says, then I shall be upright. If we begin to indulge these presumptuous sins, they will quickly assume a place of dominance in our life, and they will control us. Romans 6, verses 12 and 13 talk about how we should yield our members as instruments to God. Don't yield yourselves into sin, don't let sin have dominion. Let you know, not sin reign over you. Don't let these sins remain in place to where they will just dominate your in their life. And they will make the decisions in your life. And when they do, you will be found, as David put it, you'll be found guilty of the great transgression. What is this great transgression? It could be translated or defined several ways, I think. Just a life that is lived for self rather than for God would be a great transgression. Especially given, as he's dealing with the, God, the amount of God's revelation to him. To reject all that revelation of God, and continue to live for himself, that is a great transgression. <clears throat> so we find in this verse a desire for submission to God. Not submission to himself, submission to the sin that might be in place. He wants to be fully submitted to God, um, and rather than, and to serve God rather than serve Sin. So the calculated sins. And then the careless, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Not one of us knows when we wake up each day what thoughts or words are going to come into our lives. What we're going to think. What we're going to say. We don't know those. We can't predict those. We can't even predict them two seconds out sometimes. The thoughts just come in. I mean, I'm, I'm sure... It happens to everybody, and I'll be praying, and all of a sudden some random thought will come in and get me completely sidetracked, and I'm, I'm like 10 minutes down the road before I realize, like, where was I at in my prayer list again? I can't, can't remember. I have to go back. And, and those thoughts that come into our mind, and those are just, you know, that might be just, they're sinful in the fact that it sidetracks you, but just nothing thoughts. And then there are the really sinful thoughts that come in. When somebody cuts you off the road and and you're imagining his car wrapped around a light pole or something. Um, Those kind of thoughts, those would be sinful thoughts. You know, or, or, yeah, I'm not going to get into that. Um, We don't know the thoughts or the words that we're going to have throughout the day. And David is aware of this, and so he says, let my words and my meditations be acceptable in your sight. Be pleasing to God. He's seeking to avoid those careless sins that just pop up in an instant. And you were just caught off guard. You weren't watching for that sin. You weren't guarding your mind like you should have. You weren't guarding your tongue like you should have. And the sins happen quickly. He's seeking to avoid these careless sins. Um, And so we see that his desire is for his life to be lived in God's favor, to be acceptable to God. And he doesn't want these sins popping up into his life. And uh, so he has that desire for God and a, a desire to forsake sin. This is the right response. To revelation, to God's revelation. Be pleasing to God and to forsake sin. God has done his part. He has revealed himself to mankind. Through creation, <clears throat> showing his glory, the fact that he is a God, a mighty God, a caring God, a loving God. And then he has revealed himself through. His word. Through Jesus Christ, the word of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us, showing us His love for us, showing us His mercy that He longs to give us, the grace that He longs to give us. He has done His part. And what is our response to the revelation He has given to us? We think about the author of this psalm, even King David would fail at different points in how he responded to God's revelation. He knew how he should respond, clearly from how, this psalm. But there is a point in his life where he failed miserably, all three. Covered sins, calculated sins, and careless sins came up. And his sin with Bathsheba, he was not on guard for that covered sin, the lust of the flesh that would rise up so quickly. And then go, moving forward, you think he was a little presumptuous? He knew the law. He knew God had said, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not kill. Three major laws out of the Ten Commandments. And David said, I'm going to ignore all of them, and I'm going to do what I want to do. Presumptuous sin. Was that a great transgression? Completely changed his life. The rest of his reign would be lived in turmoil. The kingdom would be up and down. Civil wars. Civil wars. Court intrigue all over the place, his own sons, four sons, dying a natural death because of this sin. I would say it's a pretty great transgression. And it was just careless. He was careless. He just walked, he's just up for a walk. He's taking an evening stroll on his rooftop. And he didn't guard his eyes. And then the covered sin came up and he started calculating how to bring this about. All three sins, the covered, the calculated, and careless, are shown in the sin with Bathsheba. But something else that is found in in the account of the sin with Bathsheba is God's mercy. He deserved to die a couple times over, according to the law of God. But because he repented and threw himself on the mercies of God, Psalm 51 details that very clearly, God says, I will forgive you. And that is, that's how to get right with God, but that's also how salvation works. David did not pay the penalty for his own sin there. We could say some other people did. But David did not pay the penalty for that sin. He was forgiven. And we do not pay the penalty for our own sin. We are forgiven if we put our faith and trust completely in Jesus Christ. So there's a picture of how salvation works, even in this horrible event. When David ruined his life, we still see God's mercy, God's love at play. And maybe you're here and you say, I've ruined my life. I have made horrible decisions. I have been living for self. I haven't been on guard against these covered or these careless sins. God's mercy is still there. He knows we will not always have the right response to his revelation. As it says in another chapter of the book of Psalms, he knoweth that we are but dust. But as the Lord as a as father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear Him. When we come back to God, we, put our, we just come back and plead for the mercies of God. According to thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. and we put our faith in Him, when we have that fear of God in place, He'll forgive us. and in salvation He will save your soul. Your soul will now be converted by putting all your faith and trust completely in his work. So what is your response as we close to God's revelation to you? Do you have that desire to forsake sin and to please God or we just or do we just buckle down and we dig in our heels and say no, I'm not giving up that sin? Is now entered into the presumptuous sin stage. And if you let it remain there, it will dominate your life. It will have dominion over you. Those Christians who enter heaven empty-handed do so only after ignoring the revelation of God in their life. And those lost souls that go to hell ignore the revelation of God to get there. So our response to the revelation of God then is very crucial. So what is your response to God's revelation? Let's go ahead and bow our heads, close our eyes. Go into a time of invitation.